Welcome to the Think Podcast, the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective with your host, Joel Sedekes. And now, get ready to think. Hello, welcome to the Think Podcast with Joel Sedekes. I'm Joel Sedekes, and this is the show that explores impossible questions from a biblical perspective to help you explain, share, and defend your faith. Now, Socrates famously once said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And it's certainly true that life is more interesting when we take the time to stop and ponder interesting questions and ideas. That's what this podcast is all about. Questions such as, how do I know if I'm in the right career? Or what is it that causes me to constantly give in to temptation to do something that I know is harmful for me, and yet there's something strangely appealing about it. Going through life with an an inquisitive mind is not only more interesting, but it's also very biblical. Proverbs 18.15 says, an intelligent heart acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Now it turns out that God created us to be inquisitive. God created us to seek knowledge. God created us to pursue truth. When we're doing these things, we are actually functioning according to his intended design. And yet, there are still some questions that seem so basic that we don't even bother to ask them. They seem obvious. Uh, For example, take the question, do I exist? You know, that question seems like it has such an obvious answer. Well, of of course you exist. You know, who's asking the question? But um, the question has actually been debated lately with the arrival of philosopher Nick Bostrom's simulation theory. There are some who debate the issue and have suggested that we are actually merely computers, uh, merely characters in a computer simulation, like Tron or like Wreck-It Ralph. And actually, my brother Parker and I have addressed this question in an episode debunking simulation theory uh, in, in one of our Sons of Thunder episodes. Now, another question that we may take for granted is the question of prime reality. This question asks, what is really real? What is the nature of ultimate reality? You know, we have this sensation that the world as we experience it isn't the way things ultimately actually are. And I don't mean we're being deceived, I just mean that there are components and forces and elements of the universe that we know are there that we can't see. Even something as simple as atomic theory acknowledges this fact, that we can't see atoms, but we know that they are there. But then that begs the question, well, what's behind the atom? Are the atoms made up of something else? Are they made up of electrons and protons and neutrons? Are they made up of uh, strong force and weak force? Are they made up of quarks? And are those quarks in turn made up of something even smaller? Is everything made up of strings, as string theory says? And then what are those strings made out of? Actually, philosopher John Frame raises these questions in his book, Everyone is a Philosopher. Now, for thousands of years, great thinkers have recognized that the world that we see may not be the world as it actually is. Through the ages, mankind has sensed that there was something deeper than physical reality. 
We have the spiritual, we have the mental, the emotional. These are realities that cannot be seen or sensed with the five senses, and yet they are realities nonetheless. Now, the study of what is really real is called metaphysics. It's called metaphysics. Metaphysics deals with the reality behind the reality that we see. And the metaphysical explains, accounts for the physical. As an analogy, think about your smartphone. You know, what you see on your smartphone on the screen is what's on the surface, but behind the information that you see on the screen, behind the the optical display, there is advanced circuitry and there's a whole network linking your phone to other phones, to other computers and databases and um, hard drives. So this is sort of like the difference between the physical and the metaphysical. The, the physical would be like what's on the screen and the metaphysical would be like the advanced circuitry and network behind what's on the screen and which accounts for what's on the screen. The words that are on my screen don't account for themselves. They didn't get there on their own and um, and they, they, they don't explain themselves. Now, the question of prime reality, the question of metaphysics, is a question that we may take for granted until we come into contact with someone who believes differently than we do. See, your worldview is what governs your thinking. And depending on what your worldview is, that's going to affect how you answer the question, what is ultimately real? Each of us has a worldview. Each of us has a perspective on the world, a set of unquestioned presuppositions through which we interpret the world. And this worldview governs our thinking. Now, your worldview may or may not be true. It may or may not be consistent. And all worldviews are not created equal. Some explain the world as it is better than others. Now, according to recent research in America, only about 5% of people hold a fully consistent biblical worldview. So if you're a Christian, that means that many of the people in your life are answering life's most fundamental basic questions differently than you are. And that assumes that you yourself are actually operating out of a fully consistent biblical worldview. So the question now is, are you? Well, the way that you answer metaphysical questions can help you answer that question as to whether or not your worldview is fully biblical. And as a follower of Christ, as Christians, we want our worldview to be ever more in line with what Scripture actually teaches, because the Bible is our standard for life, for faith, for practice, for belief. And so we want our worldview to be more in line with the Bible's teaching, because the Bible is from God, the Bible is breathed out by God, according to 2 Timothy 3.16, and therefore, by bringing our worldview in line with God, uh, with Scripture, we are bringing it more in line with God. Now, when it comes to the biblical worldview, there is only one answer to what is prime reality, what is ultimately real, what's the explanation for all the physical reality we see around us, and the non-physical, by the way. And that answer is God. God is the uncreated creator. He is ultimately real. He has always been real. And even if nothing else were real, even if nothing else had ever been created, God would still be real. And God was real before he created the universe. So in the 
biblical worldview, God is ultimately real. God is prime reality himself. Now, remember that I said that not all worldviews are created equal. Some of them describe the world better than others. But what about other worldviews? How should we evaluate them? Well, as it turns out, we can use what we know about God to form a framework for judging the metaphysics of other worldviews. As Christians, we get our information about God from where? From the Bible. And so what we need to know is how does the Bible describe God? Because God is ultimately real. So what the Bible teaches us about God is that God is triune. This means that he is three in one. God is both three and God is one. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And yet, there are not three gods, but one God. The Athanasian Creed, which is an ancient summary of the Christian faith, does an excellent job of explaining this, and I recommend that you look that up. The Athanasian Creed. You can Google that. You can read that. It's an ancient text and explains how God is three and one. And yet, God is not merely one. God is also three. Three is more than one. That is to say, three is diverse. There's a diversity in God. See, the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father or the Son. And so while the nature of God is bound up with oneness, while unity is intrinsic to who God is, we can also see the element of diversity in God. There's an individuality to each of the divine persons. So too, we would expect then that the way that God created the universe, the way that God made his creation, would reflect the concept of diversity. Now, in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following, it talks about how his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. In other words, the way that God created the world, it reflects God's divine nature. In other words, it 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 represents his threeness and oneness, his trinity, his triuneness. So we would expect that the things that have been made, the elements of creation, the physical and non-physical realities of creation, would reflect the unity and diversity of God. But the nature of God is not just triune. There's another element to it. God is also personal. He's not just some impersonal force like in Star Wars. He is a person like us. Now, I don't mean he's a human person in his eternal nature, in his uncreatedness. He's not a human being, but so that, that means he's not limited. He's not capricious. He's not fickle, but he is personal. And so the attributes of personhood apply to God. God thinks, God speaks, God acts, God loves. As a matter of fact, due to the nature of his perichoresis, his internal unity, harmony, and communion, um, the, the internal relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God has always loved, and God is actually, uh, love is actually bound up with the very nature of God, which is why in the book of 1 John it can say, God, God is love. And so, God's attributes are the attributes not of a force, but 
of a person. So in God's creation, in the universe he created, we would expect to see an element of personality. And we do see that in the natural laws. Um, laws imply a lawgiver. But what we're also going to see is that in the pinnacle of God's creation, the representative of his very image, of his nature in creation, we will see this element of personhood reflected. Now, the Bible said that God created mankind in his own image. So, in some sense, human beings are like God. So then, we would expect to see these attributes of unity, diversity, and personality reflected in human beings. And of course, that is exactly what we see. Let's take a look. Now, in humanity, there is unity. This concept of unity allows us to categorize people. We are united as a human race. We uh, we have unity. Uh, males have unity in our maleness. We can look at the category of maleness. This is where categories come from. A, a category is a unity amongst uh, individuals, but based on some criterion, uh, some attribute, we can categorize things and we can call them united. We can say that they are united in having these attributes. So maleness, are, uh, males are, are unified, categorized, one, in the sense that they are male in their, in their uh, maleness, their manliness, or their, their boyishness. Um, and uh, all females are united in the category of being female. In humanity, there is diversity as well. There's not just unity, there is diversity. See, not all human beings are the same. We belong to different nationalities. We belong to different ethnicities. We ourselves are individuals, not... Um, not all males are the same. I'm not the same as, I'm not identical to every man that exists. Uh, not every woman is the same. My wife is not identical to all women, but she is herself. I'm me, you're you. You exist, I do too. We are diverse. So while we are one in the sense that we may belong to the same human race, we may belong to the same nationality or ethnicity or the same sex, but nevertheless, we are we are diverse as persons, as ourselves. And now speaking of persons and personhood, it goes without saying that in humanity there is personality. We humans are persons. In fact, oftentimes the word person and the word human are used in the same sense. They're almost used as synonyms. Um, we have personality. We are known and we know. We are self-aware. That is, we, we are aware of who we are as beings in a way that is totally unique. Animals are not persons in the sense that we are. They don't, a horse does not have self-awareness. A horse does not know that it is a horse. Rocks and trees are not persons. And yet human beings are persons. Why? Because we are made in God's image. And so in Romans, when it says that the things that have been made exemplify and display God's eternal power and his divine nature, we see that in the things that have been made, namely in humanity. We see personhood reflected in humanity, and the Bible says that human beings are created in the image of God. So simply by looking at human beings, we can see the validity and the truth of biblical metaphysics. We can see the validity and truth of the biblical teaching that God is ultimately real and that the nature of God is reflected back to God 
in the things that God has created. The creation that God has made reflects himself as creator. Now, these three criteria then help us judge other worldviews and their concepts of metaphysics, of prime reality. There is no question that in this world there is unity, diversity, and personality. So, any concept of metaphysics that is true must account for, must provide an explanation for unity, diversity, and personality. If a worldview fails to account for one of these aspects, for one of these elements, for example, for unity, then it fails to account for reality as we experience it, reality as it is. And that worldview's metaphysics is therefore insufficient, incomplete, and therefore false. It does not accord with reality. It is not, con- uh, it is not correspondent to reality as it actually is. Likewise, if a worldview fails to account for diversity, it also fails to account for reality because reality has unity and diversity expressed within it. Remember that metaphysics deals with the reality behind what we see. It explains what we see. So a worldview that that has a metaphysics that cannot account for either unity or diversity cannot account for the world as it actually is, the world as we see it. Now, we can judge different metaphysics based on how well they account for or fail to account for unity, diversity, and personality. Now, I understand what I'm saying is it might sound like I'm conflating the world as we see it with the the way that it actually is, but the fact of the matter is there does need to be a correspondence between the metaphysical and the physical because we do experience unity and diversity. I am not you, you are not me, and... um, Therefore, our metaphysics does need to account for that diversity and that unity. What we're going to see is that there are worldviews that attempt to explain away unity or explain away diversity, and uh, ultimately they come up short. So let's briefly look at three worldviews. First of all, naturalism. Naturalism has unity because everything is matter and energy, and matter and energy are seen as really two sides of the same coin. Matter can become energy, energy can become matter. But Naturalism cannot account for personality. Uh, specifically, it cannot account for the will because ultimately there, there is no freedom. There is no liberty. Um, in naturalism, we are products of biological deterministic forces and we are dancing to our DNA as, uh, as one, as someone has said. So it cannot account for di- authentic diversity. It cannot account for authentic personality and um, uh, authentic thought. For example, given naturalism, thinking is no is really just an illusion. It's more like a secretion produced by the brain. So one naturalist has said that thought is to the brain um, as bile is to the, uh, what produces bile, the gallbladder. In other words, the or what you perceive to be thoughts, which which um, you believe erroneously to be reflections of uh, your own reasoning. In reality, there is no correspondence necessarily to reality. There is no um, autonomy that is uh, responsible for those thoughts. Your brain is just secreting thoughts in the same way that um, your body secretes bile or um, enzymes and, and things like that. So naturalism cannot account for personality. 
And given naturalism, we are literally stardust. We are literally nothing more than matter and energy. There is ultimately nothing more um, to us than that because what is a human but an animal? What is an animal but a life form? What is a life form but um, a collocation of atoms and molecules? What are atoms and molecules but simply just matter, whatever happens to be uh, behind matter, whether it's um, subatomic particles or strings or or what have you. But um, ultimately, we are just that. We are just matter. And our diversity, our personality are just um, illusory. They're just an illusion. Now, what about Islam? Islam says that uh, their version of God, Allah, is ultimately real, but Allah is a monad. Allah is not diverse within himself. He is pure unity. Allah is only one. There is no diversity. There is no Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the Muslim conception of God. So, um, while a God like that can account for unity, and in a certain sense can account for personality, um, it can't account for diversity, and it really can't account for interpersonal relationships. Uh, there is nothing in a monad that can account for love, that can account for loving relationships, because the um, the conception of Allah being a monad requires Allah to create before he has someone or something to love. A pure monad, it doesn't even make sense to say that he loves himself because love of oneself requires a self-reflection that requires uh, a, a, some, something of a diversity. I must, I have to reflect upon myself. And, and self-love is really uh, not what we mean anyway, even if you, you were to say, well, Allah could love himself uh, and therefore could account for love. But self-love is not what we're trying to account for. We're trying to account for interpersonal, meaningful relationships. And so, therefore, Allah could not account for love and, and could not account for diversity in that sense. Uh, love requires diversity. Love requires interpersonality. Um, now, what about polytheism? Uh, um, in polytheism, such as like uh, what you get in the Greek religion, the ancient Greek religion, or in uh, the ancient Norse religions, I'm, I'm talking in the pre-Christian days, what you have is you have diversity and you have personality, okay? If the gods are ultimately real, then you have diversity because there are many gods and you have personality because the gods ha all have personalities, you know, Zeus and uh, Hera and uh, Athena, you know, they all have personality. And if they're the explanation for the reality as we experience, okay, then that can account for diversity and personality, but there is no unity and therefore there is nothing metaphysical in the Greek religion or in the Norse religion that can account for the unity and our ability to categorize um, different individual components into categories, into unified, um, into unified uh, uh, communions or, or, or relationships. And so polytheism does not account for unity. So how does this contrast with the biblical worldview? Well, again, in the biblical worldview, God is ultimately real. And so God is the explanation for everything that exists. Now, the biblical God, the God who has revealed himself in Scripture, is one. So he can account for unity and communion and, and categories. But God is also diverse within himself. 
God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three divine persons, so he can account for for diversity. But then God is also personal. God is not an impersonal force or um, a collection of three impersonal forces. God is personal. And so therefore, what do we experience in reality? We experience unity, diversity, and personality. And the biblical God accounts for all three. Now, Jesus is the linchpin of Christian metaphysics. See, Jesus is one. Jesus is one person. And yet, he is also diverse within himself. He is man and he is God. With respect to his humanity, he is created. God the Son is not created. God is not uh, an emanation of... God the Son is not an emanation of God the Father. God the Son was not um, created by God the Father. But Jesus the man was brought into being at a certain point. Hear me out on this. I'm not committing heresy, I don't think. But uh, I'm not. But Jesus the man at one point came into existence as a single cell. And so with respect to his manhood, his humanity, his physical body, his human nature, Jesus does represent creation. And yet, with respect to him being the Logos, the divine son of God, the word of God, he is eternal and he is creator. So, the person of Christ is a unity of two distinct natures. And theologians have used the term hypostatic union to describe this. Hypostasis um, refers to the personal, individual substance or person, and the union, hypostatic union, means that there are two natures. There's the divine nature and the human nature that are fully united in the person of Jesus. So, the personal unity of Jesus is called the hypostatic union. So, you've got unity and diversity, and of course, um, Jesus is also reflective of the unity and diversity of the Trinitarian perichoresis, the unity and the the interplay, the interpersonal relationship and love, the intertwined communion of the three persons of the Godhead. So, if you want to experience and get to know the unity and diversity of God, look at Jesus. Now, as to his personality, that goes without saying. The four gospel accounts in the book of Revelation clearly convey Jesus speaking, thinking, acting, um, growing as uh, as a man, you know, we see Jesus as an infant, as a young man, and as an adult. Jesus clearly, therefore, reflects perfectly the unity, diversity, and personality, personhood, that is essential to God's being and that we see reflected in creation. So there's a reason why Christians are always saying it's all about Jesus, because it's by looking at Jesus and his nature and his personhood and his unity and his diversity, it's by looking at Jesus that we understand the world and that we understand God. See, to understand the the universe, the cosmos, it is necessary to understand certain things about God. The best way to get to know God, according to the Bible, is by getting to know Jesus Christ. This is what the evangelist is getting at in John chapter 1 verse 18 when he says, no one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God, or the one and only God, who is himself God is and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. Jesus has revealed what God is like. So if you miss it, everywhere else in creation, as philosophers have over the centuries, if you miss what God is like, 
you can get it, you can get what God is like by looking at creation. Also see Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And Hebrews 1 3, which says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. That verse continues, after making purifications, purification for sin, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So at the heart of Christian metaphysics, the biblical teaching on what is ultimately real, we have Jesus Christ the God-man who perfectly expresses the nature of God, who sustains the universe by his word, and who made purification for sins and currently rules over creation. So Christian metaphysics, properly viewed, properly understood, is inseparable from Christian soteriology, from how to be saved. It is all about Jesus. God is ultimately real, and we have sinned against God, and our sin has earned us God's condemnation. But it is through Jesus and through Jesus alone that we can receive grace and forgiveness of our sins, all of our sins. Because Jesus, the God-man, atoned for sinners like us, meaning he satisfied the wrath of God and wipes away our sins for us on our behalf. He alone can unite sinners to God. See, our human unity with one another, and our unity with God as a human race have been fractured due to our sin and our rebellion against God. So only Jesus can unite us back together with God and back together with one another. So that is a Christian view of metaphysics. I um, I hope I've adequately expressed just what Christians believe to be ultimately real. It is God. All of creation is derivative and contingent, derivative from and contingent on God. Not only is God the creator, but it's in Jesus that all things are still to this day held together. So what does this mean? It means that the Christian metaphysics ultimately revolves around and centers on and has its heart in Jesus Christ and in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not goodbye. This is a chance to go and continue your spiritual journey. I hope that you have had the, that you have the chance to put something that you learned today into practice over this next week. And if you haven't done so yet and you enjoy this content, please drop by um, Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a just write a quick blurb about how much you love this podcast. Now, what that will do is... I don't just say that for my own ego, but really that helps to commend other people to the podcast. They can find us on Apple Podcasts, and um, and that only takes a minute of your time, but it really helps us out. So please, drop what you're doing, go leave us that five-star rating, and write us a quick review. Now, um, if you want to support the Sedicase family, that's my family, as missionaries here in Chicago, support the Think Institute, simply go to give.crew.org slash 101-8841, That's our giving page. I don't often talk about that, but we are support raising missionaries, and we are currently raising funds to support our, um, our ministry. We're looking for prayer and financial partners. Um, if you're watching this on Facebook, subscribe to the Think Podcast on Apple Podcasts. 
on Stitcher, on TuneIn, on Inker, on SoundCloud. And you can also follow us on social media by going to at the Think Institute on Facebook or at Think Inst on Twitter, at the Think Institute on Instagram. And we are on ThinkSpot now too. We are uh, JS Thinks. That's me. That's my personal account there. Uh, if you want to get a free catechism, which I wrote for my own kids, but which a lot of Christians and churches are using, called Catechids, you can go to thethink.institute slash print slash dash resources. And um, for more information, drop me an email at thethink.institute at gmail.com. I think that's enough information for now. That's a lot of information, but I really enjoyed this. I love, man, we got, we got uh, metaphysical, we got philosophical today. I don't always go this deep, but this is all based on a talk which I gave recently right here in the Think Institute study for a select group of guys that I had over. If you want to get in on these gatherings, please drop me an email. I just gave you my email address, but again, that is thethink.institute at gmail.com. That's all I have for you. I hope it was helpful. And until next time, I hope it made you think.